From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Clancy Balin. And this week, we bring you three stories about what it means to be a part of the pack. Humans, animals, algorithms, viruses. We all desperately want to be a part of something greater than ourselves. Instinct tells us that when we band together, we can achieve amazing things. But our desire to belong can drive us and our environment to strange places. In part one of our new series, Swarm, we present three stories about the lengths we go to for connection and the hidden price we sometimes pay. These stories have been produced as part of an upcoming exhibition with the Science Gallery Melbourne, and they were developed together with mentors from all the best. First up, Julie Fenwick reports on her uncle's journey from a smart, handsome and well-educated man of religion to a cult leader in the Solomon Islands. Cults have long fascinated audiences worldwide. A charismatic leader, a willing following and often manipulation. In the early 2000s, in the small Pacific country of the Solomon Islands, my uncle was the leader of one. I remember them walking up the hills in the mountains, lots of followers, and we'd be standing there watching them, going up the hill and light a big bonfire and kill chickens or frogs or anything. They kill them and sacrifice them and eat and drink the blood. But I used to run away because I was so scared. I thought he might come back and start do it to human beings. That's my mom, my uncle's sister. She was only in her early 20s when the cult started. The political disrest at the time around land rights saw a loss of respect for a corrupt government, an upheaval that saw New Zealand send military assistance in an operation titled Ramsey. In the turmoil, my uncle's cult flourished. My mom tells me how it all began. I never seen him like when I grew up. He never come out of the house. He always like studying and blah, blah, blah. But I heard when he went to this um, secondary school, they said they saw him, he started killing animals to drink the blood. But then when he finished from that secondary school, he went overseas in New Zealand. On scholarship to study theology to become a Christian pastor, Henry left for New Zealand, but came back during his studies. He's very handsome and very clever. Very clever. But because of his cleverness, like he's too bored probably. I think that's when he start the cult. He just want to start this church with all these young followers, like he's got about thousands of followers. One of my aunties, who was in the islands at the time, told me that though my uncle believed in God, his new religion revolved around one thing. A man's penis. No, the penis of a man. So he take this group of young boys, he tell them, you know, so and so and so, and he in some theory, like he said, we know God is the creator from the beginning, but with human beings now, this is the creator. Carving penises from wood, my uncle recruited young, restless men with a religion that intertwined old biblical theory. They put the penis on the, on the hill and, uh, you know, he's got his old boys to look after the penis and every now and then they would go up this hill and pray for this penis. But you have to, you have to drink the blood. You know, like in the old days in the Bible, you have to 
kill a sheep or something to pray to God, right? With his cart, he said he killed some of the you know chooks that running around in the village. Tell the boys to kill the chooks to and drink the blood, so so that will make them sort of spiritually related to the penis. They will walk around this penis, this calf penis, and then touch it and say, "Only you, only you." Oh, it's scary. Because they call it only you. The church call only you. One said I heard they said they naked and running around the bonfire, the fire. When he when they come down, oh, they look so scary. They their eyes are red. And we used to hide in my uncle's house and look through the window. After a year, backlash from the community and a visit from the police forced him to stop. How did it finish? Because all the churches were against it. And even his dad doesn't like it, you know. People start to create like being enemy with him because how come you're doing this and you're born from a Christian church? How come you're doing this, you know? And even the relatives and the, the family, you know, they're all scared of him. When I asked my auntie why the cult worked so well, she said it was mostly due to his education. Then again, it confused him because he's a very smart man, you know. He's educated, he's back from uni, so they reckon that, oh, there, there could be a philosophy that he must be got something from the Bible, he just turned it into one. And the boy said, well, this is it. We're human, we're born from this thing, the penis. And where is Henry now? He become a pastor. He become another leader for the church, but in another island in Western province. That was by Julie Fenwick. Bhutan is facing a demographic crisis. Young people are fleeing rural areas at an alarming rate to find work and education in a city. But as these small towns shrink, the older generation fear their culture will evaporate with the declining population. Nima Lamu Wangchuk reports on the fight to preserve the culture of her home country. In the summer of 2015, my cousin and I decided to embark on a long journey from the capital Timpu to Bumtang in the central parts of Bhutan. We wanted to meet Meme, our grandfather, and participate in the annual Numalung Techu Festival. Bhutan is a tiny mountainous country, topographically divided rather fiercely by rivers that can't easily be crossed and steep valleys that are difficult to navigate. Our journey was strenuously long. It took 14 hours of traversing through bumpy hairpin roads to cover a mere 130 kilometers. Such geographical extremities have historically kept people isolated from each other. With the development of new urban settlements in the last 60 years, people have abandoned their rural homes and swarmed urban cities. This rural-urban migration is affecting the country's age-old culture and traditions. One such festival is Bumtong's famous Shinkarabne. Lam Nidup, who is the lineage holder and the head monk of Shinkar Monastery, says that the festival attracts a large crowd of people from both rural and urban parts of the country. The famous or the unique thing about Shinkar Chechu are the dances of Hamo and Gumbo, and then uh, the Yak dance, and then the dance of the protector deity Rahula. People wear their best kiras and goes, the national dress, and adorn themselves with special gems during these festive days. 
The monks wear their yellow chegos on top of the classic maroon robes and they put on special red triangular ceremonial hats embroidered with silk. It's really such a vibrant affair with crowds of people in an otherwise sparse setting. The Bhutanese scholar Dr. Karma Punso believes that these festivals are the fundamental elements of cultural cohesion and community solidarity. Without these cultural gatherings where people swarm together, you wouldn't have these platforms or these uh, methods and means through which to transmit the values, principles, knowledge, skills and cultures. Like you would find some uh, on the streets of Melbourne, a pub to go after a long day's work. There's no such thing uh, like that in the village. The population in housing census of Bhutan 2017 reported that 21.7% of people migrated to urban hubs in the course of their lives leaving agricultural lands fallow and houses back in the villages empty. The demographic shift is definitely having a serious impact, negative impact on the festival and the uh, cultural events that happen in the rural heartlands of Bhutan. I know quite a lot of villages where there are many empty households. Lam Nyudup says his village community has a social media group where they keep in touch with each other year-long. Last year, I was just telling the community, make sure that you save all your holidays so that you can take leave for Shinatsechu. As scores of young people swarm urban cities, the cultural void continues to swallow the rural areas. What can we expect in the future? I'm not optimistic, I would say, but I'm also not pessimistic. I'm at the crossroads, at the juncture where I'm not really able to say where this is going to go. And I think a lot will depend on how, uh, say, people of your generation, people who are also at the crossroads will react. Civilizations go through phases and we have gone through our phase of falling uh, romantically in love with the globalized Western or outside culture. I think a lot of young people may also get disillusioned with this uh, romantic idea they have of the urban life. And that would, I hope, drive some of them back. Maybe we'll reach a point when urban dwellings will no longer be the most attractive future that young people seek. Maybe, as Dr. Karma says, we'll begin to fall out of love with our concrete cities. Ever since that summer of 2015, I haven't gone back to see my meme or the techu. I can't speak the language he speaks in the village, and if I was asked to organize a festival, I wouldn't know where to start. All the way in Melbourne, the distance from home doesn't just seem physical. As urban cities get crowded, the growing absence of people can be acutely felt in the emptying rural villages. Perhaps it's not just a loss of numbers. We're also saying goodbye to a part of our heritage so deeply rooted in these cultural heartlands. Nima Lamu Wangchak reported that story. When Tinder showed up in 2013, the online dating world changed forever. In our ever-present quest for love and connection, online dating has exploded in popularity, with over 300 million people using a dating app just last year. For our final story, Josh Nevitt explores the highs and lows of the online dating world. As part of the digital revolution, we are swarming to dating apps, and usage has increased from 185 million people in 2015 to 270 million people by the end of last year. 
This evolution of the eternal quest for intimacy has had mixed outcomes, though, and Tinder user Zane Marsh's experience of the app has been far from a fairy tale so far. Get on Tinder and get a match pretty much instantly. We hit it off and she asked my Snapchat within five minutes. I was like, oh, this is a bit fast. We ended up just sending videos to each other. So like bit of face, bit of dick. And after that, she sends me screen recordings of absolutely everything along with screenshots of my Facebook profile and my Facebook's friends list. I've got no money. This can't work. They can't blackmail me. So I just go, yes, yeah, send it. They're like, no, do as I say or I'll, I'll send it. And they start counting down from 10. So I blocked them at about five. And nothing happened. Being catfished is not the norm, but Zane still questions the purpose of swipe culture. Well, Tinder's main goal surely is hookups, keeping people on the app. So they do what they want you to do. So I've, I've found less people find relationships on there and that's how they make their money. It's not all bad when it comes to online love. Every member of the digital swarm has a story to tell. In a 2017 survey, 25% of dating app users in Australia found a long-term partner. A Melbourne University student, Juan, wasn't even considering this when he downloaded social networking app, Wink. I met her back in July of 2020, 15th of July to be precise. Um, we met online, so I was back in Melbourne and she was all the way in Europe, in Poland. She was just something else. She was just super interesting to talk to. She was captivating. I got the lucky chance to go see her. So I got all the required documents. Everything was ready. I even got my driving license because when I was going to be over there, public transport wasn't really going to be easy to access, especially with the pandemic. Um, transport was going to be really hard. So I got my license here in the span of two weeks. Everything was clear to go here from this side. Everything was fine. The airline let me board. I arrived in Poland. Everything seemed to be running smoothly. And I get to the border control and they're like, what are you doing here? They just didn't want to buy it. They were like, nah, sorry, you need to be a student to actually come in. This letter is not valid for entry. You need to have an actual student enrollment here in a university here in Poland to be allowed into the country. And I explained that they had already guaranteed me that I was going to be allowed in. They just, they weren't cut, like they weren't budging. They were just like, yeah, we're going to have to send you back to Dubai. There's nothing we can do. As long as you're not a student, we can't let you in. The modern dating app user typically navigates an endless stream of proposed matches but it took one unintended connection for Juan to end up stuck halfway across the globe. Until eventually the border guard, uh, he was like, yeah, so if you're a student, if you somehow miraculously end up being a student here, we'll allow you entry. Otherwise we'll have to send you back. And I got working. I talked to my parents, talked to my sister. I talked to the university and they agreed that they were going to enroll me as a student. I just had to pay the enrollment fee and Long story short, I ended up becoming a student in a Polish university, the University of Bydgoszcz. Yeah, I eventually get to where she lives at around midnight and she's there waiting for me. I was like just walking on the street and then she's walking towards me and I'm like, is that you? And then she just starts running towards me and we hugged for about five minutes. After two weeks of bliss in Poland, Juan is home now. This is far from the end of his international online love story. Hopefully I'll be able to go and see her soon. For the future, don't know what the future holds for me. Um, anything could happen, but things are still going well. 
And I definitely can say that that's the best thing that happened to me during these hard times. And I've made memories with her that I will never forget. And it's just something that online platforms have opened the path for. These stories show that the recent swarm to online love presents both risks and opportunities. As for Zane, well, he's happy to stick with the swarm. Still haven't learnt my lesson. Still on Snapchat, still on Tinder, and still don't care. <laughs> that final story was by Josh Nevitt. My name's Clancy Balin, and you've been listening to The Yarn. The Yarn is produced at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Our three stories were reported by Julie Fenwick, Nima Lamo Wangchuk, and Josh Nevitt. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. A massive thanks to Oli Krusek and Danny Stewart from All the Best Radio for their help in producing these stories. If you like the show, follow us, rate us, leave a review. We'll be back next week with part two of Swarm. See you then.